2008 is very different than 1989. Not that I can speak for that year. But we're supposed to. I mean, we're historians too, right? I described the 89 Batman as the 1940s dreaming about what the 80s would be. Because there's a lot of stuff going on there that's still very 40s. The, the hats and some of the clothing styles. And there's some clever continuities where the set designers and the costume designers figured out ways that if you take an 80s style and make it more flamboyant it kind of looks like a like a noir style yeah like uh, nicholson's hat and his pants those wild plaid pants <laughs> early on he's wearing a suit that is indeed a purple suit but it's a more muted purple suit and it's actually very very 80s and then when he comes back it's like ah now we're into the cartoons the transformation in a world of ugly, grimy buildings ruled by a decrepit elite class, a flashily dressed madman with a disfigured face breaks into an art museum with a gang of black-clad henchmen blasting obnoxious music, attempting to shock the press in general and to impress one woman in particular. They release poison gas through the building's air ducts, killing the patrons at their brunch tables. Then they dance through the museum, destroying the works of old masters and impressionists alike. They splatter drab paintings and marble busts with garish synthetic colors, slash canvases and smash statues. The only artwork the madman refuses to destroy is a tortured symbolist painting he kinda likes. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss history, culture and politics in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. This episode is part two of our discussion of DC Warner Brothers movies, The Night of the Three Jokers. talking about Tim Burton's 1989 version of Batman as well as Christopher Nolan's 2008 The Dark Knight and Todd Phillips 2019 Joker. We'll be thinking about style, interpretation, headcanons, nihilism, as always war, and inevitably fascism. Kind of like Batman. So fun IMDb trivia. Uh, in Batman Begins, Christian Bale does that voice just himself. To, Sometimes, Sometimes Batman's going to talk like this. Um, <laughs> eventually, I decided that like the in-world explanation of that has to be that he's trying to hide his voice so he doesn't sound like Bruce Wayne. In The Dark Knight, uh, Christopher Nolan added a vocoder or a fuzz box or whatever on top of it to make it even more ridiculous. So, so that's not just Christian Bale with lungs full of gravel. <laughs> it sounds like he amplified chain, chain smokes or something yeah, um. yeah. <laughs> this episode on the three jokers was recorded many weeks ago and now we're working towards the final edit of it and the launch of the podcast the whole time we've been recording honestly for the past month or so it seemed like the world's been on fire all around us and now it literally is in the wake of the death of george floyd just the most recent 
Well, sadly enough, not even the most recent police murder, given brutal police repression in cities all over America, including the Twin Cities, which are the metropolitan area closest to us. You've got a police force that literally has military equipment. They have all the money they could want. They have all the resources they could want. And our doctors and nurses are literally wearing fucking trash bags. Right. Like we can't take care of people in hospitals. We got a thousand and change to get through this god awful pandemic. And, you know, corporations are looting the federal funding for small businesses. And yeah, no shit, people are going to go burn down a target. The police force is, you know, attacking people and has been for as long as there's been an American police force. We've seen it on television as long as we've had television. The kinds of things that the Black community has been screaming at us to take seriously for decades. You know, if we think to that nadir of race relations in the United States, which is basically the turn of the 20th century, say the 1890s through the 1920s. And this is why we say, God damn, is this the fucking pointless century? Did we not get anywhere? And again, this is Frank in Post. The situation on the ground in cities all over America has changed and is changing rapidly, so I'll just insert a comment here that this was all recorded before the uprising began, and the next episode will include a number of films dealing with BLM, ACAB, FTP. Last time I mentioned that Jack Nicholson's Joker in that art museum scene is basically a terrorist. And then looking back on it, I think that maybe that's actually a distinction between the 1989 Batman and the Dark Knight. Because in 1989, no one's going to use the word terrorist to talk about what Joker's doing. And in fact, more interestingly, what he calls himself is an artist a homicidal artist. So in in my mind, Jack Nicholson in that role maybe is gesturing back more towards certain styles of serial killer movie. And uh, on the other hand, Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight is more explicitly a terrorist. And that distinguishes The Dark Knight, historically speaking, from something like Batman, which is to say that it is the age of the war on terror. When Jack Nicholson's Joker was putting paint on the paintings, it wouldn't actually matter because all these paintings would have varnish on them. They could just easily scrape away. So it means nothing. Is the point that he's permanently destroying works of art or is the point that he's just trying to shock people? I think he's trying to make his mark like, hey, look at me. I'm different than Batman and I'm making a mess just like this city is and I want to keep it that way. So right, you. Batman, right, and I'm putting my middle finger up. And if you if you take it from the futurist angle, you could you could say, well, he's trying to shock this woman, but also he doesn't care at all about this woman. It's just adding to what he already is. But also from a modernist um, perspective, they just throw everything out the window and they're like, no, we're gonna do it our way. So that's Joker doing it. Modernism. I don't like these old types of paintings that the old folks did. We're going to change it up and we're going to add some cool splatter paint. Let's expand our minds. And then his girlfriend comes in later and is like, oh, and I wanted to watch you improve the paintings. Uh, it's hostage. The woman who he has captured and is keeping. What a romantic gift. A gas mask. I mean, who could want more? Yeah. Yes. 
I do think that there's an obvious modernist futurist angle. That's that's why I'm obsessed with it. But I also think that there might be, especially to the 1989 viewer, a, a more obvious comparison to graffiti art. The painting that he chooses to write his name on, it kind of looks like a wall that you do graffiti on anyway. Exactly. That's what, that's yeah. what I noticed. Exactly. He literally starts with painting, Joker was here on the wall, on the painting. If we think about it also as something that can be reversed easily, just in the same way that a new graffiti artist tags something gets painted over and then somebody else comes back and tags it later. Temporary art or temporary vandalism. It's pretty prominent in 1989, so it seems to fit. It's also a weird Second World War joke that's sort of squirmed its way into our consciousness. Apparently, during the Allied advance across Europe, there was someone who today we would call a graffiti artist who was writing Kilroy was here all over everything. And enough people remembered this that it ended up getting used as a joke in, you know, a lot of like cartoons and movies. And then it's sort of detached from that context. And if you say Kilroy was here or so-and-so was here or see somebody writing so-and-so was here on a wall, that's just like, it, it's like become a meme. To my mind, what the Jack Nicholson Joker intends to do or sees himself as doing is some kind of art. What Heath Ledger's Joker intends to do or sees himself as doing is some kind of terrorism. And what Joaquin Phoenix's Arthur Fleck Joker is doing is something more like what I would have to regrettably call a conventional spree killing. Oh, no. Which of these was the better movie? I really like the 1989 version the best. You're right. Give me a minute and I'll think of reasons. I cannot think of any single way that the 1989 Batman is worse than the 2008 Dark Knight. In every single rubric for that movie, it, 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 it knocks it, it knocks everything else out. And I don't understand why it doesn't get more respect. I don't understand why they made two more. If the, you got it right the first time, <laughs> why? Like... <laughs> obviously, you're not. You're obviously you're not in the film industry. Exactly. Thanks, capitalism. <laughs> or that's not even the right word to, to describe it. Well, it is. It's it's money. It's capitalism, but it's 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 what Horkheimer and Adorno would call the culture industry. It's the culture it's, industries. Yes. It's the capitalist reproduction of reliably successful entertainment products. And arguably, that's what this genre is. That's what this subset is. That's what it's all about. Which is so annoying. I do think that there is a case to be made for redoing things in different formats for different audiences in different eras to keep things interesting. I also think obviously Hollywood takes it too far. Right. That's what I was, that's what I was just going to say is like, when is enough enough? It's also worth noting that when Horkheimer and Adorno came up with the culture industry theory in the 40s, they were talking about genre film and in a certain sense film at all. They were talking about romance film. They were talking about crime film. They were talking about melodrama as it was produced in Hollywood at the time, not necessarily recurring characters, remakes, and stuff like that. 
of those things happened, they were less common back then. And so like a lot of things in Marxist theory, they kind of overstated their case and made themselves sound like assholes, but eventually capitalism caught up and made them right. Yay, capitalism. <laughs> Does anyone know what DC stands for? Detective Comics. What? What a letdown. Thought it was going to be something... Oh, different than that. It's something that leads us right back around to genre studies, of course. Batman debuts in detective comics in the 40s as a type of detective. I mean, if we think about it a little bit harder, yeah, he is a yeah. detective, right? I think he was much more obviously a detective early on. If you, like me, grew up with the 1960s Adam West Batman series, then it's even more obvious because he's like solving cases. He's running things through the computer. But we get a little bit of that in 89. Yeah, we get a little bit of that in, in Michael Keaton's 89 version where he's puzzling over things, he's looking at the screens or whatever. And then he comes to, this, to the conclusion, oh, well, it's all about the way that these different cosmetics interact with each other. It's not just one thing that's poisonous. He figures it out. Big brain energy. By the time we get to the Christian Bale Batman, it's much more just physical. It's much more just like, I'm fighting crime, you know? Yeah, except for like the cell phone sonar stuff. Yes. From detective policing methods through increasing levels of surveillance, we already have hidden cameras in the 1989 Batman to the point where we're talking about a fully surveilled police state. A lot of people have talked about Batman, a character as in a certain sense, fundamentally fascist. I think that he's become more fascist over the years. Well, even comparing 1989 to 2008, I can see where you can make that argument. I mean, I don't know. Maybe these are great movies. Maybe these are not great movies. When The Dark Knight came out, a lot of people seemed to think it was a great movie. I had a friend who was like desperate to get me to watch it and I fell asleep halfway through. <laughs> um, it is, I believe, the most successful superhero movie of all time. Definitely the most successful Batman movie of all time. And I think it's fair to say that Joker is a movie with serious artistic merits. Mm -hmm. But... The 1989 Batman is clearly the superior Batman. And there's, and, no, there's no arguing that. There's so, no arguing that. You have everything that makes a good Joker. Okay? And it's not too You're, long either. Yeah, exactly. You're departing from the narrative of terrorism that makes it into a really interesting angle where he calls himself an artist. You have him twirling a cane. You love that. Through a museum. I mean, literally, what more could you want? I... He just, Nicholson just is his the Joker. Yeah. Obviously in all these movies, the, the Joker overshadows the Batman. He's more interesting, yeah. right? I mean, Jack Nicholson. But of course, everything about the 1989 Batman is better than every other Batman. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. so, and so, therefore, it's easy for me to say that Michael Keaton kicks Christian Bale's ass here. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why I hate Christian Bale's Batman so much and I, at first I thought that he was a perfectly serviceable Batman, but I've decided that he's terrible. I've decided that I don't like him and he, he violates the spirit of everything that comic books are supposed to be. Not that I necessarily should care, but for the purposes of this, I guess I ought to pretend to care. He's not this shy, clever nerd. He's now just like this damaged Ivy League jock. That's a good way to yeah. describe him. The first it's time accurate. we... The first time we see him, he's dissing the vigilante Batman. What, what separates you from me? He says, 
you're wearing hockey pads. Like as it like I'm ripped and you're not. I have a Lambo and you don't. Yeah, that that too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but Batman's always sadly enough been about I have the money, I have the toys, I can do this because you know I the DC you know, Iron Man. Some would say that Iron Man is the Marvel Batman, but. <laughs> But uh, then to add on top of that, this this swagger of I'm jacked and buff and you're just a dweeb, right? The nice thing about Michael Keaton's Batman is that he realizes it's completely ridiculous that he was born into this situation of being Bruce Wayne. Like he's embarrassed about it. And that makes him accessible. That makes him have the kernel of a normal human being there. Mm-hmm. And in comparison to Bale's character, he kind of has an elitist air to him, especially his voice and his mannerisms, the way, oh, yeah. the way that their living space is set up. How can anyone get through this movie? I don't. Let's go, <laughs> Let's go fight some crime. Hello. Let's take it back to the 60s. <laughs> for these two movies, for, for the 1989 Batman and for the 08 Dark Knight, I think that I was squarely in the target demographic for both. In 1989, they were trying to make that Batman for a kid of first or second grade. For a kid of that age and for a boy of that age, it was really significant in that we had had a Batman. I had seen the Adam West Batman on TV because it was in syndication in the afternoons. And I thought it was fun and I enjoyed it. And I liked the idea of Batman. There were also Batman cartoons on TV, but also I, I had an awareness of how dweeby that, that, that Adam West Batman was. And in a certain sense, and I don't think that I would have had this word, you know, I don't think that I would have even probably known what it meant at that time, but like there's something very queer about the 1960s Adam West Batman uh, and Robin. Uh, that even goes back to the old comic books. And I don't think it's incorrect to say that the all dressed in black, really serious, reserved Batman that Tim Burton gives us via Michael Keaton is an attempt to take away color, take away flair, take away any of those sort of like fun, campy things from what people had seen of Batman before. It was completely intentional to try and make a serious superhero movie. And it's still a little goofy compared to something like The Dark Knight, which is of course trying then even very much harder. But it also makes sense from a logical standpoint. If you're a bat, you're supposed to be all black. It also makes sense sense from the standpoint of if you are a schoolboy, you're probably getting ready to try really hard not to act queer. Right. I think that it's completely intentional and it's something that we see in, around this sort of like hardening of Batman. See, in the, in the 50s, even with the moral panics around comic books, you'd have psychologists coming in and talking about how the comic books were encouraging kids to be violent, and highlighting deviant behaviors and stuff like that. And there was actually a psychologist who, who claimed that the uh, 1950s era Batman was promoting homosexuality. The claim was that Batman and Robin 
are obviously in some kind of relationship. They're just hanging out together. They don't like hanging out with women. They're just lifting weights and, you know, living in this big mansion. They're deviant lifestyle. <laughs> oh, so deviant. Which is interesting because then you can also think of him as a reflection of almost hyper-masculinity, I'm tempted to say. Of which futurist masculinity that doesn't yeah, need women. Which is, which is odd that then they would go, go back and say, well, that is partly contributing to promoting homosexuality. It's interesting to think about how the two play together. I do remember at some point reading an essay where someone was writing about his memories of the 1960s era, Adam West, Batman and Robin, and how growing up as a boy and coming to terms with the fact that he was gay, that was actually a way of him sort of having his center and like understanding like, yeah, this can be cool. This can be fun. This can be, you know, upstanding and moral and, and good, you know, and in a certain sense, I think that for some subset of men, Batman and Robin in some versions, were actually gay icons in a legitimate, non-ironic way. And then, of course, that got taken away because men have to be men have to be men. I mean, if you asked Tim Burton to his face, he'd probably be like, no, I wasn't trying to do that. But, you know, Tim Burton's a straight man, and that's sort of where his bread's buttered. And so his idea of a serious Batman is probably going to be automatically heterosexual. Especially in 1989, where the inclination wouldn't be necessarily to take it in some weird direction. It would probably be really fun to see someone do an intentionally gay Batman, but it would drive the fanboys nuts, of course. Yeah, because it's hard to accept something that you A, don't understand, and B, don't identify with. You see the same thing with the changing of Ariel to a Black woman. You see it with Ghostbusters being remade with an all-female yes, cast. Yes, yes. So the way that I see this progression is the Adam West Batman is really like a queer computer geek. There are really a lot of scenes with him like programming this computer that goes boop, 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 boop. And, you know, he's also has a sort of joking sensibility, a sort of seriousness that's also not serious. There's a, a campiness to the whole series. Michael Keaton, I would describe him as a sort of shy, clever nerd. The turtleneck. In a certain sense, he's a transitional Batman because he's still maintaining some of that geekiness and some of that very dry sense of humor, but he is also embracing the darkness in a way that we didn't see in the earlier Batman. And a lot of this owes quite a bit to Frank Miller, who did the Dark Knight series in the 80s and then later gained fame and fortune with such fascist masterpieces as 300 and uh, the Sin City movies and stuff like that. Frank Miller had decided that the 50s and 60s uh, Batman was you know, too tame, too nice. And he went back and looked at the 40s comics, which owed a lot more to that noir sensibility, a darker, grittier, meaner, more troubled Batman. And so that was the Batman that he did. And then that influences Keaton, and ultimately that's what we get in, in the Christopher Nolan, Christian Bale version of Batman, The Dark Knight. Yeah. I remember having an epiphany at one point in college when the first Sin City movie came out and I went to see it. I was really excited about the idea of, for one thing, there are a lot of women warriors in that movie, really deadly, dangerous, powerful women. You know, I was like, this movie is so cool. And then I brought one of my friends to see it with me who, who was a woman. 
And then watching it the second time, I was like progressively mortified as the movie went on and on. I was like, oh, oh my God. It was like watching it the second time with the awareness of how she would see it. It drove home to me like, oh my God, this is a dude movie made by dudes with dude ideas about dude things. And actually it's stupid at best and perhaps just totally offensive. (laughs) (laughs) Once you wipe away the gloss, it's hard not to see the cracks there are a lot of people who watch these movies who don't have that experience. This is the, your stereotypical fanboy doesn't have platonic friend. Who's a girl to, to take to a movie and watching it, thinking of her perspective. Oh, wait. Yeah. I got to think about why I thought it was cool, you know, or perhaps, you know, even the friend who's going to tell you why it's not cool, which is, which is good too. He doesn't even have a nice house anymore. I mean, like, what the fuck is the point of being rich if you don't have a nice house? It's a fucking Are you going to be? I don't know what it is. Once the mansion gets built, you're going to be going from not sleeping in a penthouse to not sleeping in a mansion. The thing is that this is the way that a lot of rich assholes actually live. Yeah. Um, you know, like the kind of person who thinks like, yes, that $2 million McMansion is definitely much better than the $1 million McMansion. This one speaks to me. Michael Keaton as Batman has taste. It might be weird taste. It might be nerdy taste. It might be the standard colonialist, I'm going to go to strange places and buy expensive things taste. But he does have taste, right? He has opinions about things. He thinks that things are funny, thinks that things are beautiful, thinks that things are ugly. The Christian Bale Batman is like purely functional. And the first movie, Batman Begins, which I haven't seen since it came out in 05, it's basically, I've got a vendetta. I'm going to find myself. I'm going to train in martial arts, buy a lot of fancy toys. Where am I? Why am I? Who can I beat up? In a way, they trade off of each other. Where Keaton has taste, then with Bale, you go and strip away that taste and then his ideology is pushed more where keaton's ideology is more in the background i think keaton has less of an ideology than a morality keaton's batman yeah yeah, sure he's a lucky son of a bitch and he's the richest man in the world but he also is just a dude trying to do the right thing i get much more of a sense with christian bale's batman that he has a sense of society needs to be a certain way and I will make it be that way. It is an ideological program. So if Michael Keaton is a nerdy guy with some level of taste, then on the other hand, we have Jack Nicholson's Joker, who is this suave criminal artist who has, again, a sort of style about the way that he dressed, the way that he carries himself off, even competing with Batman in the sense of, oh, look at my toys. Oh, you have toys. I have toys too. Look at us doing clever things and being weird and flashy. Similarly to uh, the Christian Bale Batman, where it's just like, I'm tough and I drive a (laughs) hell of a car. We have Heath Ledger's Joker who, when arrested, in his pockets are nothing but knives and lint. So sort of the same argument could possibly be made for the two Jokers. Right. And then you have to inevitably ask yourself the question, is that a vision of the film? And if so, is it therefore also a vision of the era? Where does he get those wonderful toys? Classic Jack Nicholson Joker line, talking about the Batman. And then he himself also has wonderful toys. The electrocution buzzer. 
and yeah. the the uh, the, the acid flower oh uh, squirter. God. I also uh, didn't get why he um, it's Vicky, right? Vicky Vale, yeah. Yeah, Vicky Vale. I don't get why he would have sprayed it at her because he must have been anticipating that she would. I mean, and you've seen you've seen how he treats women. True. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. A homicidal sociopath. <laughs> he's also a sadist. You can make that case. We might have to actually define terrorism at some point. But I wouldn't necessarily say the Heath Ledger um Joker is what would technically be considered uh, terrorism because it's defined as the unlawful use of violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims. But as yes. the Ledger Joker is, uh, is, I think it was uh, Commissioner Gordon was like, some people just want to see the world burn. Yes. So now we get into the question of what terrorism is anyway. And I have at least three definitions. You, of course, used the real definition, but it's worth noting that normal people in normal in their normal lives might not, right? Yeah. Uh, and by the real definition, we might say you use the definition that is used by political science. I think that militarily, terrorism might be defined in a slightly different way, but more or less along those lines, sort of more in the direction of non-traditional surprise guerrilla attacks which squares with the poli-sci definition, but is a little more just technical and tactical, whereas the political science definition is necessarily ideological. Then there's what I would call the vernacular definition, or you might call it the nationalist definition, or if you want to be uncharitable, the racist definition, <laughs> which is a terrorist is just an enemy of the state. And honestly, I've taught classes where I mention offhandedly terrorism is not like a group of people doing a thing. Terrorism is a tactic. Terrorism is a strategy. Anybody could engage in terrorism. And there are students whose minds are blown because they hear the word terrorist and they think of somebody with a certain skin tone from a certain part of the world. And they associate that so strongly that, that terrorism to them is actually just an indication of an enemy. But we're also the generation that don't remember 9-11. So we have a different perception than people that have a memory other than a cultural memory. Right. Our perception of the event is stuff that's been told to us. And yeah. if that's the narrative that's perpetuated, then unfortunately that's going to stick with some people. But it's really important to remember that it is, like you said, an attention-seeking act. Well, it might be. I think it's interesting that you say attention-seeking, because if you talk about then attention-seeking acts, right? Yeah. Attention-seeking violence actually is a way of lumping together spree killing and terrorism. Whereas, again, going back to the political science definition, actually intends to make that distinction to separate off a non-ideological spree killer from a terrorist with an ideological agenda, with, with a particular political or military goal. They're both seeking attention, you're right. Both are attention-seeking, but one is just attention-seeking in, you know, hey, look at me, look what I did. Right. And, and that yeah. distinction is made. And yes, there's definitely a distinction between, oh, I, <laughs> I shot the school to get 
media attention and have my 15 minutes of fame versus, well, I adhere, I adhere to such and such ideology. I think that they're hard to distinguish, especially with the types of violence that we have in the United States. And then when we look back at these movies, they become difficult to distinguish again. Honestly, if you look at some of the more, if you will, rinky-dink ISIS attacks, you might call uh, the ISIS franchise attacks, that is to say, not an actual member of a terrorist organization, trained, armed, equipped, and under orders from a terrorist organization, that would be corporate. On the other hand, the franchise version where it's like, I saw some YouTube videos, these guys look badass, Allahu Akbar, I'm going to drive my truck into some people. Like that kind of franchise style attack, it's actually very difficult to say that that person wasn't really just a spree killer who happened to be like, ah, yeah, well, I'll, I'll say some, you know, I'll say some terrorist words and pledge my allegiance to something while I do the thing that I was already going to do just because I'm angry. Yeah. And perhaps that's why there's multiple definitions. Um, potentially, it can mean different things to different people beyond the political science definition. There's a third definition here. And I guess I might as well finish covering the, the, the second one, which is the, the enemy of the state, by just mentioning that this actually goes back to the beginning of law in a certain way. The concept of the outlaw is basically the way that the term terrorist is used right now, certainly by nations like, for example, China or um, Turkey where you can just use this term to say like, oh, this person doesn't have any rights, they're a terrorist, right? Um, like declaring someone an outlaw or in the, in the, in the Roman model, uh, Giorgio Agamben has the, the concept of the homo sacer. We even, of course, see the United States doing this. Um, and, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that we started it obviously, but certainly we've uh, been the ones pushing it in a way that's popularized it in the 21st century with uh, the opening of Guantanamo and the declaration that these individuals are not soldiers of an enemy army, uh, subject to laws governing POWs, but rather they are unlawful combatants. Therefore, they have no human rights whatsoever. They're out, outlaws, they're outside the law, they're terrorists. So then you now will see anyone, a political figure, uh, who is more or less suspending law, use that term terrorist to say, well, this person is outside of the law. And honestly, that's not really very different than that vernacular nationalist definition, or if you will, that vernacular racist definition of terrorist, which is just to say, well, this is a horrible enemy person. Third definition. This is from Peter Sloterdijk, and this is the one that I'm obsessed with. It is the design of a lethal environment, design of a product to kill, and the delivery of that product in such a way as to produce a lethal environment that also necessitates some sort of explanation for why it is occurring and who it is targeting. So within that, you get poison gas, you get explosives, you get indiscriminate attacks, but the indiscriminate nature of it is the crucial thing. It's not a question of targeting specific individuals, but it is targeting whole zones, attacking everyone in a particular area. And then saying, Sloterdijk calls it increasing explication, saying, well, this is the area we're targeting. This is why we're doing it. You started it, or do this and I'll stop, or 
if you come back at me, we're going to escalate further, right? So Sloterdijk's definition, and he uses the term atmo terrorism, he claims that it begins, of course, on April 22nd, 1915, at the Second Battle of Ypres with the Fritz Haber chlorine gas attack. And then he basically says this characterizes both what we would traditionally call terrorist attacks made by non-state actors, but also particularly spectacular styles of attack that uh, are undertaken by state actors. So you'd say uh, strategic bombing is terror bombing, the atomic bombs, or any number of other things. And it's, it's a sort of more leveling definition that allows the concept of terrorism not merely to be something that uh, those with much power uh, get to accuse the weak side of a conflict of engaging in. Ledger's Joker is definitely the third kind of terrorism. I love that definition, by the way. In that you're saying it's this sort of indiscriminate nature of what he's doing? Yeah. He just wants to watch the world. That was my bad um, dramatic voice. Well, what about the way that we're told he wants to watch the world burn? Uh, how that's revealed and what that means. I was at a conference once, uh, I think it might have been film and history, uh, and I don't know who said it, but somebody was um, talking about the Dark Knight in terms of its political meanings and talking about that series of scenes. It's two different scenes where Alfred is talking to Bruce Wayne about his experiences uh, with imperialism. It's not really put that way, but it probably should be. Yeah. Oh, we were trying to do these deals with these tribal leaders in the jungle. And uh, then one day we, horror of horrors, ran across this kid with, was it a giant ruby, if I'm remembering correctly? Mm-hmm. So yep. The size of a tangerine. Someone's stealing these precious stones oh, and doesn't yeah, even the, know what they're the worth. The guy is just... He never ran out of money, but he was just stealing them to steal them. Yeah. What did you think of that? It really fits that Joker. I guess. A Joker comes from the world of Gotham, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What this unremembered scholar was pointing out at this conference was that to these people living in this remote part of the world that's just now coming under they control the British Empire. What do they care about rubies? Why would rubies matter to these people? Do they have an economy that's based on precious stones? Maybe not. Do they value them in any way? I mean, is it going to feed me? No. Many cultures <laughs> have valued precious gemstones for their rich color if previously they were lacking such. They might, but then again, they might not. I think the point was that to presume that the gem necessarily has value. And then furthermore, to presume that only someone crazy would just say, oh, I'm going to steal this thing and I don't even care about it. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, oh, here I stole a bunch of things and here's something that I don't want and I don't understand, whatever, I'll throw it away. Yeah, that's Moriarty in, I think, season two of Sherlock. Breaks into the vault of the uh, crown jewels and... He just sits there waiting for the police to come get him after he's broken in. And he's literally sitting on the throne with the scepter and the crown. And he's just chilling there listening to some classical music. And he's just waiting for them to catch him after he's broken in. But that matters because Moriarty is British, right? Yeah. 
and he gives a shit about the throne and he gives a shit about the scepter. But if you imagine somebody who busts in there is like, I don't like that chair, whatever. <laughs> That's actually the example of the Ruby has much more to do with that person who's like, well, I don't know, this big red thing is just kind of heavy. But the point is that the anecdote presumes this Western attitude towards economics, towards value. It presumes capitalism. It presumes the kinds of motivations that somebody under the British Empire would understand. It doesn't presume the knowledge or the aesthetics or the economics or value systems of whatever people lived in this place before the British came here to take it over. And so therefore it is hopeless in its effort to understand that person and being unable to understand that person then comes to the conclusion, oh, they must be crazy. <laughs> like yeah. you're talking about a system that's like incapable of imagining difference. So then what do you do because of that? Well, the interpretation that Alfred gives is some people just wanna watch the world burn. Pretty stark misinterpretation. These people did not want to watch the world burn. They merely did not care about rubies, nor did they want the British in their area. And for whatever reason, probably because they were outsiders, were sticking up and robbing convoys. Okay, that actually seems pretty normal if you put it that way. But if you have constructed a whole society based on the assumption that valuable things matter a whole lot, let's buy and sell, then it's like, these people are crazy. Do they not know what a ruby is worth? Like, no, it's a big fucking heavy red thing. Um, and so in saying some people want to watch the world burn, maybe the dominant culture is telling on itself a little bit. Because do you remember what happens when the story comes back again? And Bruce Wayne asks Albert, well, what did you do finally to catch the bandit? He burned down the forest. What in the fuck? Yeah. Like you literally gave him what you thought he wanted. I don't believe he actually wanted that, but what in the fuck? <laughs> and I don't know if we've referenced it yet. We must have referenced it before. The Vietnam era catchphrase, we had to burn the village to save it. Ugh. We covered it with the First World War too, right? Wonder Woman indeed did have to take out that sniper. Fair enough. And, you know, she did it uh, more efficiently than the heavy guns would have. But, you know, realistically, if they were trying to clear that town of Germans, what they'd do is they'd just pummel the whole thing with, with heavy shells. And... Welcome to Raqqa. Now that we've efficiently covered 100 years of history. <laughs> Does the Joker want to watch the world burn? What is the world's response to him? Why is this movie made in 2008? And keep in mind that the 08 Dark Knight, which the both of you with, I think, legitimate reasons seem to not take very seriously as, as a film. <laughs> when it came out, people lost their minds. They thought it was fucking brilliant. Now, to be fair, I was hanging out with a lot of 20-something dudes, but also there were, you know, more serious people. I had also just finished second grade. I wasn't into that stuff. I was into My Little Pony, so I didn't care. But I also think it's Christian Bale, the celebrity appeal. He is good looking. Eh. And I don't want to sound like an asshole here, but Heath Ledger died by suicide before the film was released. Yes, he died right after they'd finished principal shooting. Not by suicide though, by accidental drug interaction. The, I might say overdose. Not an overdose uh, of one thing. I don't remember the film that much when I was a kid, but I definitely remember people talked about Heath Ledger. 
and how brilliant he was as a method actor. Do you think that he was brilliant in this movie or do you think that everybody needed to believe that he was brilliant to justify oh, his gosh. death? He lived that life, so I can't even, well, the amount, the psychological damage that it put on him, I have mad respect. Maybe it's not the best thing to do, like for your own self. Yeah. I mean, I don't know anything about Jack Nicholson's techniques, but my guess is that he's more the kind of an actor where, well, I'm always doing a Jack Nicholson role, so I'll now do a Jack Nicholson Joker. Um, yeah. Whereas I don't know if we can necessarily say that the Joker part killed Heath Ledger, but it's a case you can make. And I think that if you see Joaquin Phoenix, who's gone through his own weird roller coaster of life, I'm sure that doing his Joker took a lot out of him too. At a certain point, maybe you step back and be like, this method could potentially produce great art, but it could also kill me. And the thing I heard about Phoenix's portrayal is that it actually did take a lot out of him because he had to lose so much weight that they could only shoot everything once, I think. Because he was just so, obviously so weak from such a huge transformation of his body. Crazy, like when he was reaching up and you could see his... Yeah. Heath Ledger's Joker is a really great part. He did a fantastic job with it. But I think it is the thing that saves what is otherwise far too long and not well put together enough of a movie. I don't think that The Dark Knight is a bad movie, but I think it's a movie that is lacking in a certain amount of style. Christian Bale's Batman needs a little more spice. You said he had spice, though. Physical appearance. <laughs> portrayal. Ledger's Joker is a great performance and he oh, intentionally yeah. decided to do something that would be so different from the Jack Nicholson Joker. Oh yeah. And he did it successfully. But I do have questions about that movie as a movie. And I think that the questions that I have about that movie then fall back on questions that I have to ask of the war on terror. It sounds like a crazy thing to put it that way, but the version of Joker that we get in The Dark Knight, where we've taken Jack Nicholson's suave criminal artist and turned him into Heath Ledger's unhinged nihilist mercenary, is a concept of the terrorist who is so extreme that he need not be considered in terms of his motives, in terms of his perspective, in terms of his politics, in terms of his ideology. It's not even saying that he doesn't have those things. It's saying that those things don't matter and shouldn't be listened to. It reinscribes the notion of terrorism in that notion of the totally out of bounds outlaw. Some people you can't do anything with but destroy. Sometimes you have to just burn down the forest. But then again, these are people who just want to watch the world burn. It's a very strange ideology. And I do think that it's an ideology because it's the ideology that we've been suffering under ever since September 11th. You wouldn't remember this. And it was not very well reported in the papers, but it is a matter of historical fact that after the 9-11 attack, the Taliban government of Afghanistan offered to give up Osama bin Laden in exchange for not being invaded. And the George W. Bush administration refused that offer. Put another way, rather than taking terrorism 
on its face as a criminal activity with specific people who can be apprehended and charged and punished for those crimes. The George W. Bush administration, and from then on, every administration since then, chose instead to take on the concept of terrorism, or, you know, more specifically, radical Islamic jihadism, as a global war to be fought whenever and wherever necessary. So now, 19 years later, we still have soldiers being sent to fight and die in Afghanistan in a war that we've known for a long time is unwinnable. It could potentially be unlosable if you just stay there forever like a colonialist. But it's definitely unwinnable because there are mountains and caves and, you know, when people live in a place, they live there. And we, generally speaking, live here. It's just a waiting game. It's just like Vietnam, right? We had to burn down the village to save it. We have to burn down the forest, right? It's not so much that the people you're fighting against want to see the forest burn but they are gonna still be there after it burns. I mean, unless you kill every single one of them and then at that point that's a genocide. It seems to me like Heath Ledger is the terrorist bugbear that such a stubborn shoot itself in the foot for 20 years civilization like ours imagines. Such tactics only make sense if you imagine a nihilistic Satan who cannot be reasoned with. Let's look at his most famous terrorist act, the dilemma of the two boats. This is in a whole genre of ticking time bomb scenarios that war on terror era United States imagines for itself to try and justify like maybe we should torture some people in this case you know so he enacts this ethical thought experiment with two boats of people characteristically for a society like ours one is ordinary Gotham citizens and one is convicts so they're on their way to the prison, I think. I thought they were getting out. One way or another. The point is that they're outlaws, they're scum, they're criminals, right? They have that option to detonate the other boat. If nobody chooses, then both boats will be exploded. Both boats throw out the keys. Even more interesting, both boats vote that the right thing to do would be to blow up the other boat. Yeah. And then after that happening... In both cases, somebody's like, somebody's got to step up. And then dude steps up and throws the detonator out the window. What do we take away from that? There's still some humanity left. That's what they want us to learn. But I'm not sure that that's what I learned. With every piece of art, there's an intended message. But you have to ask yourself, well, what are they not saying? Yeah. What is the opposite to what they want us to think? Yeah. And that's one of those cases. So what is that? The Joker expects everybody to be like, ah, everything sucks, blah, 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 blah. So he expects both of them to turn the keys because he said, get ready for the fireworks. Yeah. 
he claimed that he was going to blow up both of them if they didn't make a decision fast enough. So if nobody has the stones to go ahead and, and pull the trigger, then they both blow up. But actually, he hadn't rigged it that way at all. The point being, he assumed that one of them would have blown up the other, no matter what, that he, yeah. he, he was confident on that point. And he's annoyed. Sometimes you just have to do things yourself. And if we want to take it in the sort of cynical direction that the later you know, Joker movie goes, if we take Gotham to be the kind of place that, that it is, then maybe we'd presume that the upstanding citizens would detonate the boat with the prisoners on it because, of course, they're always going to get the shit end of the stick. And then those people would tell themselves that they had made the right decision. But that's not what happens. The lesson that we're supposed to get out of it, that the characters basically are voicing to us is, there is still some humanity left in Gotham. People are not as bad as the Joker assumes that they are. Yeah, but that's not what I took from it. That's not what I took either. So what did you get, Anna? In every representation of the Joker and in the supposedly normal people, how different are they from the parts of ourselves that we don't like to admit that we have? So are the parts of ourselves that we don't like to admit we have the parts of ourselves that actually do want to watch the world burn, the parts of ourselves that, you know, are going to vote on a secret ballot, of course we should detonate the other ship. And yet to keep that hidden, you can't actually do it. We assume that everyone is good. I feel like that's going to crack eventually in everyone. Which is the fault of Diana. That's why we, we preferred Harley Quinn to Wonder Woman. People tend to prefer Batman to a character like Superman because he's not perfect. And that way they make concessions to the opposite of what they're actually trying to say. The dilemma of the two boats is sort of in the realm of what we see in, is it the Saw movies? We get a lot of these very bizarre situations that are set up where people have to do completely horrible things that involve killing other people in order to survive. It's of the era. These are the cultural products produced by a society that is obsessed with creating these strange dilemmas. Like this is in the same period in which a television series like 24 becomes popular, where you have complex ticking time bomb scenarios with terrorists that would never actually occur in real life, but that always force the representative of truth, justice in the American way to horrifically torture someone for information so that they can save people. It's a world of faux complex utilitarian dilemmas that are then used as excuses for the atrocities that our government perpetrates. In, in game theory, this is sometimes called the prisoner's dilemma. Get them out and you'll be safe and they'll die and vice versa. But if you both don't say anything, you'll both get half the sentence you would have before. The cops are trying to get either one or the other to talk. If one talks, then that person gets off and the other person does the time. If neither talk, then they get half the time. If both of them talk, they both get all the time. Actually, your motive in every version of this game is always to rat out the other person. That's nice for somebody who's playing a logic experiment. Okay, well, the logical thing to do is you rat out the other person. That's not the actual world we live in. And it's not because people are irrational. It's because people are involved in networks of trust and threat. You know, people don't rat each other out because they don't want to get beaten. 
you know, or they don't want to get killed, or maybe because they have actual loyalty to a criminal organization, or they're projecting it onto themselves, like, I don't want to die, so honor code. Yeah, the prisoner's dilemma is sort of this interesting way that we see what we might call a rationality separated from actual material circumstances, basically just being disproven by the facts of life. And we see the same thing with the two boats in the harbor. Okay, so of course the rational thing to do is you pull the trigger and you detonate the other boat if you want to live. But also, of course, nobody wants to do that because as horrible as we think we are, we actually aren't all just compulsively homicidal, even if the chips are down. And the prisoner's dilemma actually gets then translated into wargaming in an interesting way during the Cold War, where they're trying to figure out what strategies for nuclear warfare should be. They play a lot of war games where they try and figure out all the various different complex ways that somebody can fuck up and destroy the Earth. But, you know, how can we do it in a way that we, you know, destroy their half of the Earth first? This is from Manuel Delanda's War in the Age of Intelligent Machines. He explains the history behind this, that no matter how many times they'd work their way through these war games, they realized that even in just the game, everybody always did everything they could to not blow up the world. Everybody would always get more time to negotiate and drag things out longer and longer and longer. Nobody wanted to just pull the trigger. You know, in terms of your rationality, you'd say, okay, well, you're two countries at war, whatever, whoever pulls the trigger first wins, right? But nobody ever wanted to do that. And this actually played a large role in them trying to develop artificial intelligence because they were interested in, is it possible to produce a system that could do this without having any of those mushy, squishy human feelings getting in the way? This is something that's supposed to make us feel better about humans, and maybe it does make us feel better about humans. And yet also the dilemma of the boats is inevitably a way for Christopher Nolan to be like, democracy is bullshit. And actually what you really need is somebody with uh, the balls to take the detonator. And whether the thing that he does with the detonator is throw it overboard or pull a trigger, that's as nuanced as Christopher Nolan's notion of politics and philosophy gets. There are those who protect civilization and those who destroy it. I've said it's always the 80s in Gotham. I don't actually think that's literally the case, but sort of in the same way that you could say that we're still living in the 80s is in the same way that you could say we're still living in the Reagan era. The way that government has abandoned social safety nets and reflexively gotten into this game of let's just beat down on the criminals as hard as we can and surely that will change things. The way that we construct foreign policy on a similarly retributive basis. The Dark Knight movies are supposed to roughly be taking place in 2005, 2006-ish. If we presume Heath Ledger's Joker to be like a 16-year-old punk in 1981 when Arthur Fleck inspires a riot, that would make Heath Ledger 41 years old at the time of The Dark Knight, which seems plausible to me. Yeah, Heath Ledger was 20. 28? I'm way off. Very frequently in these extended comic book universe plot lines going back to ultimately the 40s and 50s, you have characters who are identified as one version of the figure and then somebody else takes it up later and mm -hmm. that's how these comic books persist from generation to generation to generation 
we don't have to necessarily take Heath Ledger's Joker as literally killing uh, right. Thomas Wayne in 1981 because we've established that Joker is a concept, almost emerges immediately as a concept. But it's a long-winded way of opening up discussion of the movie Joker, which sort of shows us how this world begins with Thomas Wayne as this conservative bourgeois caretaker figure that Penny Fleck says is the only one who can save this city. I didn't notice it till the second time I saw the movie, but I thought it was intentionally Trumpian. Do we want to spend a minute talking about Taxi Driver? Both movies are definitely structured in a way to get you to sympathize with this main character who is clearly disturbed in some fashion. Now, looking back on the plots, do we think that Arthur Fleck's outrage is more legitimate than Travis Bickle's or vice versa? Does one of them seem more reasonable, at least within the madness of what's going on there? What makes the most sense to the regular public is Travis, because he's killing owners that prostitute 14-year-old girls. Honestly, that's a hard question to answer because you can see parts in both of them where someone could justify their rage, but then also you get the flip side of that. So it's it's hard to consider one more reasonable than the other. You know, the square answer to the question is no, neither of them are justified and I would never break a law. Certainly murder is wrong. But what you were sidling up to there, Rachel, is sort of significant which is to say that Travis Bickle goes after these underworld characters that we're very used to seeing targeted within movies. So to put it a different way, within movie morality, we might be more inclined to say that what Travis Bickle does seems justified. It sits with our understanding of harm and rage and justifiable homicide all the way back to some white knight riding in to save a princess. On the other hand, what's Arthur Fleck doing? Outward rage to the people and the systems that have wronged him and the other people. Put another way, uh, Bickle's going after people who the cops would be going after anyway if they were actually doing their job, whereas Fleck is going after people who the cops would never try to take down. Yeah. And the way that he sees it is he's writing grievous wrongs. Yeah. I do think that it's interesting how both the 89 Batman and the 2019 Joker start with petty crime. They both have this interest in starting with ordinary street mugging type crime. And in Batman, it's almost in reference to the um, death of Bruce Wayne's parents. When it comes back again in 2019, we see that it's not a mugging, it's a, it's an assassination. But I think traditionally it was usually described as a botched mugging. That start of the movie with petty crime is interesting and more true to the sort of comic book roots than starting with large-scale crime like we get this spectacular bank heist with this cascading series of killing off henchmen in uh, the dark night and again it's like imagine the most evil person you can doing the most spectacular things possible it is the bugbear of civilization while i think that heath ledger's joker is a brilliant performance i don't see any way that i'm supposed to expect that character can lead people. In certain games that you play with cards, you take the Joker out, but you keep the deck. 
and so it's always separate. Again, I think that this is a movie dreamed up by a society that's too stupid to see why anyone would come up against it. Joker is, on the other hand, a movie that's very aware of what is wrong with Gotham, with American society, et cetera, et cetera, and understands how even if this person who's a madman is going to do some horrible things, there are reasons for that. And there are furthermore reasons why that makes sense to some people. Arthur Fleck obviously is barely competent to, you know, get by in his own life, but you can also see how, like, as a symbol, he means something to inspire a, a movement, if you will. The popular interpretation of this film is white male rage, but I think that's a cop-out, which only scratches on the surfaces of the undertones of the films. No one critiqued democracy, but it extends beyond that. In the most recent version of Joker, they critique power in opposite ways. 2019 is the abundance of power, and 2008 is the lack. Both representations are outlets for chaos. There's too much power in the 2019 Joker. The society is too heavily organized from the top down. And in the 2008 Dark Knight, it's like falling apart. That's the way you see it? Yes and no. In 2019, their whole campaign is kill the rich. So that to me is an abundance of power. We're supposed to side with Arthur Fleck. We're supposed to follow along and sympathize with him, even if we recognize that he does some bad things, right? We're supposed to sort of in the same sense as taxi driver, we're supposed to be following from his perspective. Yeah. With all previous versions of the Joker, we have not been intended to do such a thing. And as well played as they are, as charismatic or as weird or as interesting a character as the Joker might be, we're never supposed to be inhabiting his subjectivity. He's always clearly a villain. Which is weird how the culture industries construct that because then you have to consider, okay, we're supposed to sympathize with someone who historically has always been in the majority group of power anyway. And I think that's the point that I was trying to get at. Mm -hmm. That's why it's important that Joaquin Phoenix's Joker is desperately poor, is mentally ill, is like barely even feeding himself properly. Because Jack Nicholson's Joker as a certain inverse of Bruce Wayne, he's also a successful capitalist. He just happens to be, you know, a criminal, right? Um, Heath Ledger's Joker as an inverse of Bruce Wayne of Batman is also an obsessed person trying to remake the world in his own image. And with Christopher Nolan removing what we've in the past called style from that film, he's also in a certain sense removing any kind of background. All the background stuff for Bruce Wayne and Batman is shoved into Batman Begins and then the director and writers ha have made the decision to seal off the Joker's past so that we don't know anything about him. So therefore he exists outside of class, outside of politics, outside of anything other than nihilism, 
versus civilization. And so then it is very much a big deal to re-envision this figure, not only as someone who we're supposed to sympathize with, but even more importantly, as someone who is embedded so painfully within the systems of power of Gotham, who is, again, just barely feeding himself, who has to do things like wash his mother, who has to do things like see a counselor. When we reinsert that figure into a, dare I say, real world of 1981, then we have to actually consider a real issue, right? And I don't think we can boil it down to white male rage. I think that the people who said that this was about white male rage are people who desperately, desperately do not want to talk about class. Yeah. In a real world application, how are you going to change things that you're unhappy with if you don't have a meaningful discussion about them or consider them at all? Yeah. Well, and it's, it speaks of class in the way that people fear most. And one would like to say it's a straw man discussion of class, that like, oh, the motto ends up being kill the rich. But the straw man has then a grain of truth within it. Actually, the rich are killing poor people all the time. Arthur's mother is dying. Arthur is starving, you know. And certainly Arthur's first murder is something that you could call self-defense. I think it's really interesting that the first place we see this motto, kill the rich, is on a newspaper. So what we see is the media taking up this concept of, oh, well, what if rich people were targeted for violent crime as well? What if it wasn't just poor people? That gets readopted by the movement as, okay, you say we're going to kill the rich? Sure. Very current in a time where people on Twitter are, you know, getting their chuckles joking about guillotines. In a time where literally people who are on the bottom rung are going into work and they could get sick and die. No doubt about it, capitalism can and will kill you for a buck. Taking it to that dark place. The connection that Fleck makes with Sophie Dumont, played by Zazie Beats. This character in his apartment complex, he sees her in the elevator and she makes this gesture, mm -hmm. the gun to the head gesture, one of numerous direct and indirect references to Taxi Driver. And he does it back to her. And this is like one of these moments where it's like, oh man, you don't understand people in social cues. He does it too seriously. Mm -hmm. Like, look at me, I'm blowing my brains out. It leads down this path where then he's stalking her. Mm -hmm. And then we have this whole plot line that clearly he imagines. Mm -hmm. So there's a scene where she comes to his door and asks, was that you following me today? She then jokes, I was hoping you'd come by and rob the place. And she says, I have a gun. I could come by tomorrow. And she says, you're so funny, Arthur. First off, we've never seen that he's given her his name. Secondly, this is the only situation in which anyone has told him he's funny. So we know he must be imagining it, right? It's also the only time that he's cracked anything that sounds like a joke, except when he says it, you know very well it may not be a joke. I'd say that you're suspicious of the relationship anyways, because it seems too good to be true 
for him. People will be quick to say, well, it's just another manifestation of his mental illness. But again, it goes deeper than that. It goes back to the things that we find in ourselves when we reflect on what could my life look like if this, this, and this didn't happen? What could it be or what do I want it to be when deep down inside we know that, well, such and such isn't attainable because of this and this reason. You don't really see her talk. Like, we don't find that much out about her. Well, we could also ask ourselves, what is realistic in a movie? This genre of movie particularly. Like, we don't get much of Vicki Vale in the 1989 Batman. This style of movie doesn't ask much of its female actors. Well, women are props. Exactly. And I think that this scene is, to my mind, a really interesting way of calling that out either intentionally or unintentionally because i fully believe that your uh hypostatized fanboy budding incel watching this movie thinks that this is a meat cute he thinks that this is clever and dark and a good way to impress a woman by being like look i'm clever and dark and actually, it's fucking monstrous and threatening. Which is why budding incel is the perfect term. Well, people have said that this is, in a certain sense, an incel movie. And I think it can be oversold. I think that some commentators might have pushed that angle a little bit too far. It could be that, but I don't think it intends to be that. I do think that that person, though, that hypostatized fanboy, could take this as a meet cute, and that's because we have so many of these shitty scenes, so many of these like shitty relationships in movies where you're teaching young men just push and push and push, and it's okay if you're weird, she'll grow to love you. Yeah. And so this is then rehashing it in a much creepier way where he's literally stalking her, literally threatening to attack her, and she is supposed to brush it off as, oh, that's fun and clever, you're cute. If we are to imagine ourselves to be the kind of viewer who is capable of being surprised by the fact that she's imaginary later, which is, of course, the whole point of the plot line, then we also have to take this seriously as a way that these two characters could or should interact in a movie, which is, as I said, massively calling out the way that gender dynamics work in movies for young men but then again i don't know if i even noticed it until the second time around because uh, i'm a dude (laughs) it's it's hard when you're watching a movie like this to say like is that the world is that what it's doing we see awful things in movies all the time and especially if you watch old movies like it's hard to find a sex scene that's not like oh geez you know yeah after the scene where he kills the three yuppie scum on the subway platform he then does his weird tai chi dance in the bathroom and he has this super masculine march down the hallway of the apartment building he pounds on the door to her apartment and goes in and embraces her he's recaptured his masculinity i thought that was so stupid i think you're right it is stupid but it's stupid in the way that we've seen this in movies before and this is how sick we are that we sell these things as reasonable It's not stupid if it knows that it's stupid. It's stupid in the way that the ending of Taxi Driver is stupid. Where, like, imagining that he gets away with it and people think that he's a hero. If you take that seriously, then you're a part of the problem. If it's not his imagination, then, like, the movie makes no sense. Yeah. And so, similarly, this march down the hallway into the arms 
of the woman when we men who've been fed this shit our whole lives see this and have this feeling of yeah righteous vengeance this feels good when we have that response to it that is the purpose to provoke that response so that assuming that we think about things for longer than a half second we can then pull back for a moment and be like oh shit that's in me too that's a problem and if you didn't get it when it's happening then it will show it to you when it's revealed that it's imaginary and that's when you say oh wait a minute okay stupid movie bullshit about how dudes are going to solve problems by shooting people and women aren't going to feel like that's maybe a problem tldr as they say the incel reading of this film is a reading that is completely on the surface and misses the ultimate point. The incel reading of this film is, yeah, I'm going to get the girl after I enact my righteous vengeance, because this is what I see in the movies. This is how a man acts. Mm-hmm. When actually this movie, if it's doing anything that's worth doing, is actually trying to tear that down. I'm just left with the question of how is that not damaging? And also... The people who are affected by it, do they even know how deeply it's been ingrained in them? When Paul Verhoeven came out with his film version of Starship Troopers, the whole point of that movie was, I'm going to trick you into rooting for the fascists. And when this dude comes out in like a full-on Nazi outfit at the end, If you didn't figure it out by then, finally you'll realize, oh yeah, this absurd sci-fi militarized society is not a good thing, is not what we should try to be doing. This is all a joke. Verhoeven says, well, the original concept is I wanted to make a movie about the high school class of like 1941 in Berlin or something like that. Imagine kids growing up under the Nazis and just like, oh yeah, we're, we're doing cool. We're going to go into the army. Things are good. Like we got to save our civilization and all that. And it's like revealed at the end, oh, they were Nazis all along. Obviously that wasn't the movie that was going to get made. So he made Starship Troopers, which Heinlein had written as a serious novel about, yes, it would be a good idea if you had to do military service in order to be able to vote, and so we have to kill these thugs. So Verhoeven's doing it as a satire. Lots of people watched that movie and were like, yeah, yeah, kill bugs. Where can I get a gun like that? People watched it just as like stupid fun action movie and didn't get the fact that it was supposed to be satirical. Even to the extent that there were sequels to the movie that are done as straight ahead sci-fi military movies. So yeah, this is a big problem with movies. I would say that it's actually more of a problem with movies than it is with books. I want to talk about Joaquin Phoenix Joker as a pop culture icon in terms of political discourse. The staircase where he does the jumping thing, that's like the biggest pop culture thing. If you participate in something like that, I would want to go to them and say, I get it that this is something used in the film, but in doing this, aren't you missing the point? I saw a photo online that I'd like to imagine isn't true of a Handmaid's Tale themed wedding. You want to run in there screaming like, no, no, no. Uh, This one couple wanted the Game of Thrones theme played as the Isle song as the bride walks down. Killing, killing, incest, killing, killing, incest, more incest, killing, killing, killing. So among more serious people, and I use that term very loosely, but (laughs) but among more serious people, uh, 
on political Twitter. I see the Joker used as an icon for people on the extreme far left who identify with him in the sense of envisioning the uprising he inspires as a legitimate revolution. You are rolling your eyes so hard, Anna, that your head looked like it was going to fall off. Well, what, it's, what it's are your thoughts? is it not? What are, you, what are your thoughts? I'm just so annoyed. I don't even have the words to describe it. It's just absurd. I mean, is it if the capitalists are quite literally trying to kill you in many cases, is it not legitimate to rise up against your oppressors and perhaps in some cases kill them? That part is legitimate. Some of their principles are off, but I think the fundamental idea that they promote isn't that off. But I think in identifying with someone like him literally, at least to me, that's unnerving and also disheartening for where we're going politically. And they may not be identifying with him literally, though we'll get into that in a minute. I think more often, if we're just talking about radical left Twitter, we're thinking about people imagining that Joker mask is something that any large mass of people could pick up and say like, well, we're all the Joker. We're all a big mob of Jokers. And in the movie, you see that group of people who we don't really get a chance to meet envision themselves, or at least some of them probably envision themselves as a political movement. Whereas Arthur Fleck himself disavows then says, I don't believe in any of that. I don't believe in anything. <laughs> His defensive nihilism rather than a positive nihilism like you get in Heath Ledger's oh I'm more threatening because I don't believe in anything Arthur Fleck is recognizing that actually for someone like him it's more dangerous to society if he did believe in the proletarian revolution then he might be a real threat but actually I don't believe in anything it's okay not for Murray Franklin not okay for him I think that people are starving for icons like that because you don't get a lot of them in American media. And I remember the last time it happened was when V for Vendetta came out. But I've also noticed, and I may be misinterpreting some things on Twitter, but what, that's easy to do. I've also noticed the Joker and the sort of icon of the clown has become more specifically a sort of inspirational icon for communist trans women taking this image of Arthur as what one could change oneself into. I'm not sure if I'm, again, quite fully understanding it, but I've seen this. That is an interesting angle. And I notice specifically that toward the end of the movie, where he's gaining confidence, he starts to speak differently. He speaks and his gestures are more of a I don't know if I'm going to use this term correctly, adding more swish. His voice is a more queer sounding voice in a few moments there. He becomes more performatively feminine, including those moments where he's on the talk show with Murray Franklin. This is like an official term, gay voice. Yeah, but I don't even think he's quite doing the gay voice technically. It's just a little more, and I want to say that, that it shares less with gay male presentation than it does with uh, trans woman or drag queen presentation, if you understand. Yeah, what I don't know how to specifically label it. But did you notice yeah, him yeah. doing that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to confirm, like, am I imagining that or is that, is he, that's there, right? Yeah, definitely. And we see some of that maybe in, in sort of his gestures, which look like they could be exercises that he's doing or dances. But then in other moments, we see them coming out in just the way that he moves his body 
once he gains more confidence and becomes more natural. people using a term like go full joker and he uses a similar term at the end of the movie they want to make sure that we won't werewolf and go wild so the image of the werewolf like transforming into something different that will be a threat to the dominant culture You've been listening to episode two of The Pointless Century. I'm Professor Frank Fucile. I was joined by Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily. Perhaps obviously, I'm still learning how to edit a podcast, but we do have a number of these in the bag already, and I do intend to release one every Friday by noon, if at all possible. Our next episode will consider the films Do the Right Thing, Thelma and Louise, and Queen and Slim. And after that, we will be turning to poetry, considering Amiri Baraka versus T.S. Eliot, looking at the beginning and the end of The Pointless Century. The music for these first two episodes is by the International Noise Conspiracy and Refuse. Check out my recent essay on Taxi Driver at brightlightsfilmjournal.com.